Yes. So and we're back. And we're back. Not on YouTube, mind you, but why not? Because they don't like free speech on YouTube. No. No. Apparently, us two in our Hawaiian shirts. Uh, no, not good. YouTube get lost. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not on YouTube for two weeks. Because we're now on two strikes. One more, and we're out of here. Because of our Hawaiian Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Apparently. It's That's exactly what they said, too. No, they said medical misinformation. I mean, the last, it was two weeks ago, in the second half of the show, we discussed what everyone else was talking about, increasing evidence of vaccine injuries in the mainstream. And we use the same mainstream reports that, for example, Russell Brand made his show about that. And day he added the title and everything. No, yeah, we didn't even, you know, draw any, any kind of sensationalist title or a description about it, you know, and we included all the mainstream report links in the show description. But no. Um, oh, we must have said Medical something. misinformation. We must have said something, did we? I probably said something. I, I, I don't think it's it's, a, it's how you say it. Um, I've talked to this a bit with, with Scotty and others. You know, well, they probably not have, they don't have people actually actively looking for you. Instead, it's an algorithm. So as soon as you say key words, it triggers it. But that that can't be right either. Or, or if that is the default case, then when other larger figures with massive audiences use the same trigger words, well, somebody has to go in and suspend the controls for the videos to stay up, right? So I'm not suggesting us little bitty, you know, talk show hosts with our wee audience, you know, get special attention. But I I, uh, I wrote to them and I said, you know, appealed it, look, guys, um, we said the same things that this show, this show, and this show have said this week using the same sources as they have. And within minutes, again, was it a bot? But within minutes, you know, appeal denied. That's hmm. it. Two strikes. Blah. So, anyway, at least on this show, we can say whatever the hell we want about the vaccine. So, yeah, why? <clears throat> why? Because YouTube is irrelevant. Too. But but other people are censors too. It's not just YouTube doing the censoring. No, Rumble and Odyssey will. They won't censor. They're not doing that. They, they are. They are. They do. They do censor. Like if you come on like full blown Nazi or something about something, yeah, yeah, yeah they'll take it off. Mm -hmm. That's reasonable policing of speech. You know, it's not this. Oh, you said a trigger word. Mm. You're out of here. A trigger word that we made up like last week or whatever last month. You know. Yeah, or you've infringed some kind <clears throat> of uh, yeah some speech misinformation speech that we arbitrarily decided was. It's absurd. It's absurd because we were speaking about the mainstream reporting mm -hmm. on the COVID vaccine. Yeah, but how were we interpreting it, Neil? You know how were we? You know what I'm saying? It's all about what you say. No, it's and what it's you think. It's, a con it's the contextual way you say it. If it sounds like you're saying it from the point of view of someone who's skeptical right. and, quote, on the other side, because this is how they see it in ideological terms, then even if you say something carefully and considerately of their wishes, you're, you, 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 you quote smack of Trump or you smack of populist. Hmm. Therefore, no. Hmm. It can't stay up. Anyway, not bitching about them. Um, it's been there's been quite a lot happened the last two weeks. How is there? Yeah, Britain's got a new prime minister, a new monarch. Um, Biden went full Nazi in Philadelphia. The Russian front apparently has collapsed in northern Ukraine. Col 
It's collapse, Neil. It's systemic collapse, colony collapse. Well, I'm not sure what else you call it. What? What else would you call it? The Russian military has collapsed. The, the front in the north of Ukraine has collapsed. Putin has fled. <laughs> Putin well, has left the Kremlin. Has well, he gone into a bunker? He's gone into a rat hole. You're, you're obviously disputing my characterization of it, but uh, do, do we want to start there? Um, it's a big development. I mean, that's the biggest transfer of... The front's been the front line's been more or less fixed for four months, mm-hmm. and about twenty percent of the twenty percent that Russia held is now Ukrainian again, including Izium, apparently this strategic stronghold, high point, important. It's on a crossroads plus railways. two rivers, railways. That was important to protect uh, Donetsk and therefore the the actual Donbass proper to the south. Um, Russians withdrew from there completely yesterday. Uh, been about two days of withdrawals. Um, okay, so yeah, let's start there. What do you think? The Doomer's the Doomer interpretation is: Oh my God, it's all Hang gone on. wrong. <laughs> I'll like, get my copium. I need a couple of doses of copium before I can uh, hold <clears throat> forth on this. <laughs> Lift uh, us up here, Joe. Everybody, tell us the band's gonna make it. There's no copium. Well, the stocks of copium are, are done, like are out, like you know. Ukrainians you have something. The Ukrainians have been using them all up over the past six months, and now the Russians are just swallowing them like there's no tomorrow. You know, uh, it's a bit. It's all a bit pathetic, like really. I mean, um, there's the the media, like we've said before, the media reporting, Western media reporting on this war has been we've talked about this before right it's been you know 90% disinformation and we've talked about this in the sense of you can't really use that as a criticism of them because they not just they but in terms of war the information war is a very important part of uh, the actual kinetic war Uh, so Nobody should, I mean, nobody, we've complained about it, but you can't really complain about it because it's part of war. Lying about what's happening, misrepresenting what's actually happening is part of war propaganda, which is designed to support your side in the war. So as the Western media sees it, and and obviously the Ukrainians, that the more twisted, distorted, outright lies, information they can put out there, uh, the better, because it helps morale, uh, amongst the Ukrainian military and amongst the Ukrainian people, it keeps uh, Western populations, to whatever extent they're engaged with it, keeps them g'd up because no one wants to be on the side of or, or on the losing side in the war, right? So you always have to keep keep up that pretense that Ukraine is winning, Ukraine is winning, the Russians are losing, right? So the whole thing is big quagmire and shit show, and it's very hard to actually. Well, it's not hard, but you have to just wade through the bullshit to try and find out what's actually going on, you know. Um, Agreed about the last six months in general, but, but that applies do you not agree that the last few days... Uh, well, yeah, something has changed. On the ground. Yeah, but how, how significant is it uh, is a question. Obviously, like I said, because of the nature of the, the, the war propaganda, it's being touted by everybody in the West and Ukraine uh, as being decisive, turning point, fled, collapse. They haven't gone quite as far as saying... Um, that Putin has gone into a, a, a rat hole and U.S. troops are 
hunting for him in the outskirts of Moscow, ready to pull him out like they did with Saddam. But they'd like to, they'd like that to be the case. They'd like to be able to live like that on the. Uh, so you know what I mean. I'm just saying we have to understand the extreme nature of the, or extremely distorted nature of the reporting on any event, including this event. So yeah, um, mistake, mistakes happen. Was it a mistake? Obviously, it was a mistake. That's not something the Russians would have wanted to happen. Is it that significant? I don't think so because um, the you know, as long as I mean, which what, what what territory is is important, really important when it comes down to what what kind of territory can can you not give up? The territory that the Ukrainians took back in the northeast around Izium and you know. Um, it's not much use to them if they can't do anything with it, you know, if, if they're not going to move any further than that. And I don't think they are going to move any further than that. And I think they'll probably, uh, they'll, gi- they'll, have to, they'll give that territory back up in, in due course. Um, the, you know, the, the ter- territory is that important, uh, that's important for the Russians is the territory that they've already, that really around Donetsk, Luhansk, Donetsk and in the south. And they still hold pretty much all that territory. It's not under direct uh, direct threat. You know, they're not. The point is, it's not. They're not. This isn't going to be a continuation where Donetsk and Luhansk are going to go back to Ukraine. That's not going to happen. Well, but that's the way it's being portrayed. Well, a pro-Russia account, someone who's on the ground, Russell Bentley, mm. is reporting from Donetsk that's, City. He's worried because they moved fifteen thousand defenders of the city the third corp, I believe, up north to reinforce the retreat um, and that attacks, shellings have increased mm-hmm. um, in Genesis City. He's, he's, he's writing in all caps, like, you know, all stay, all hands on deck. The city is currently undefended. Is he dooming? I mean, he's there. You know? Yeah, but um, again, it's really hard to, it's really hard to figure out um, what's going on. What, what's interesting to me is that is is after six months of Ukraine not making any headway really at all, just defending and defending and progressively, slowly losing terrain over the past six months to Russia as Russia advanced, then suddenly, within the space of a, a few days, basically, Ukraine achieves a, an unprecedented, let's say, victory or seizure of, of land. And, uh, and why that happened? What changed? Obviously, something changed. Um, well, well the Russian accounts are are all that you know. This specific site was practically undefended. Um, that there were just three thousand uh, Roskvardia, which is a kind of a national guard um, soldiers mm-hmm. in between two one post and another, and that they observed that the Ukrainian side and exploited it and went through it. Mm-hmm. And now the figures about how many. Ukrainians, that's, that's kind of mind-blowing, the numbers that they could put at this. Um, I think I've heard up to 50,000. Maybe that's too much. Um, another thing is that the numbers that are going through the opening they made, um, they're still losing. The Russians have obviously retreated fast, apparently to save as many lives of their soldiers as possible. In the process, though, their Ministry of Defense has reported that in the last 
from September 6th to September 10th yesterday, they estimate 4,000 Ukrainians killed and another 8,000 wounded. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that combines both uh, continued artillery over the heads of the retreating frontline Russian soldiers on the advancing Ukrainians in both the Kharkiv direction and in the south in Kherson, mm -hmm. which is another thing we need to talk about because Kherson preceded this was touted in the West as the big push. Failed completely in the sense that, you know, there was no gain and just had streams of ambulances going back to Nikolaev, Kiev, wherever. They could, hospitals are full. Even Ukrainian media acknowledged that. Mm -hmm. They've lost a lot of people attempting to push the Russians in Kherson north of Crimea. But then out of the blue, Kharkiv. Now, clearly that was planned. I mean, you had, a large, you had a lot of attention focused on the south, but then you had a large concentration, obviously, unseen by the Russians or seen too late, building up east of uh, Kharkiv City mm -hmm. for this push. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, supposedly there was a... The, the, the Russians are claiming, or the Ukrainians are claiming that there was a, a feint, essentially, mm. uh, towards, south, towards the south, and that the... The Ukrainians made it appear like they were going, I suppose, through the amassment of a certain amount of troops that they're going to attack uh, Kherson in the south. Uh, and the Russians basically, you know, deployed uh, resources and troops and artillery, etc. there, leaving Kharkiv um, relatively undefended. And then they actually went for the real counteroffensive, which was further north in, in Kharkiv, and they took over this, this bit of land. That's their narrative anyway. Of course, they... Uh, what a sacrifice to make to do that. 4,000 dead. Apparently, they don't really care. Ukrainians don't really care about... Uh, the Ukrainian government certainly doesn't care about uh, trying to protect um, uh, its soldiers or, you know, reducing the number of, of dead soldiers. And it's one of the strange things, actually, the willingness with which Ukrainians... Of course, it's lauded in the Western press press as, as the bravery of the Ukrainians, but their willingness to kind of, like, just allow themselves to be slaughtered, basically, is, is strange, you know? It's bizarre. Um, I suppose that's happened before, patriotism, all that kind of stuff. But you know, it, it kind of exposes the fact that you know the idea that Ukraine and Russia were kind of like brotherly nations, and there was a lot of mixed blood in a certain sense, and a lot of you know, since most Ukrainians spoke uh, Russian, that you know there was there wasn't so much a really a, a strong sense of uh, Ukrainian nationality and or, uh, patriotism, let's say, that would have allowed for large numbers of them to sign up to the military and go and fight the Russians because they saw the Russians as brothers or friends or whatever. And maybe, maybe you know, that was a kind of narrative that was there beforehand, but uh, <coughs> it suggests that um, certainly there's a significant number of, of Ukrainians who are very much, see themselves as, are Ukrainian patriots and certainly at this stage hate the Russians. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I don't know to what extent the Russians maybe de depended or expected that that might be the case, that there, would, there wouldn't be much resistance in that, in, in that sense, but um, obviously there is. Um, but, I mean, we have to obviously mention the fact, the reality of the situation, which is that none of this would be happening without uh, American, primarily American weapons and NATO countries, but primarily American financing. America's at this point is about 10 times... Uh, the, the amount of money, uh, somewhere around $15 billion at this point, um, that they have in terms of mostly weaponry and uh, supplies to Ukraine um, compared to the next closest, which is the UK, I think, which is maybe two or something, like one and a half or two or something. Um, but really, Europe hasn't done very much at all. Without, without America, this wouldn't be happening because apparently Europe isn't... Uh, 
doesn't have the wherewithal or the, the resources to really to do what America's doing. Or doesn't have the, I suppose, the, maybe doesn't have the ideological commitment to it, because this really is an American war against Russia. Uh, we don't know to what extent. We know, obviously, pretty much all of their weapons at this point are coming from um, from the West, from, from the US. Um, are there, how much, uh, how much American slash NATO military personnel are actually involved, directly involved. I know we know they've been involved in terms of uh, coordinating in the, in the command centres and all that kind of stuff, but actually at the front lines and actually directly engaged with Ukrainian troops. There's evidence that there's quite a few. Are they just mercenaries? Are they just have-a-go heroes signing up for the cash? Is the Pentagon paying them? Because they're certainly not going for the few hundred dollars that uh, Ukrainian regulars get, right? They, these guys, whoever's, whatever Americans or Europeans that are going to, to fight there, like actual military personnel, they're not, they're being paid by someone. Uh, maybe being paid by Ukraine, but if they're being paid by Ukraine, that means they're being paid by America, you know? Yeah. It's like America gives a bunch of money to Ukraine, Ukraine gives it to American soldiers. Uh, yeah, they, they get a lot more than Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians get $2,700 the first month to sign up. That for them is like, you know, yeah, like 10 times the monthly wage in Ukraine. But then it drops off, right? It drops off. Right. Uh, not much. Um, yeah. Um, that is that is the biggest contextual reminder people should have. You know, oh, Russia can't beat itty-bitty little Ukraine. Well, <laughs> Russia's up against, you know, a serious, serious commitment from the U.S. Mm-hmm. That wasn't just talk. What surprised me maybe... Maybe I had higher expectation based on what they initially were doing when the U.S. announced they would send in mm-hmm. tons of material to <clears> Ukraine. <throat> they seemed to be launching airstrikes right across the country to the western points of entry in Poland, Romania, and so on. Mm-hmm. Did that stop? Was it insufficient? Could they hide the delivery of systems and weapons and everything else? Is Russia incapable or unwilling to quite suppress that at that point of entry, you know? Mm. Because clearly at this point, when they can launch a surprise attack with maybe up to 50,000 people, mm-hmm. freshly armed, freshly trained from the UK as well, they're able to leave, go to Ramstein, go to Britain, and come back with the guns, with the training, and enter a new front, open a new front, all the way up near Kharkiv. They, some reports say they've reached the Russian border there, by the way, so... Uh, Thirty kilometers from the Russian border, yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. There's um, who is it? Um, Tara Taras Berezovets, who is um, former national security advisor turned press officer for the Bohun Brigade of Ukraine's special forces. Uh, best. She, he, she, I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, she apparently said uh, about this offensive last night, the much touted Kherson counteroffensive was a big special disinformation inf- operation. So that's in the south. There was a disinformation operation. Russia thought the planned counteroffensive would be in the south and moved their equipment. Then, instead of the south, the offensive happened where they least expected it, in Kharkiv. And this caused them to panic and flee. Meanwhile, our guys in Kharkiv were given the best of Western weapons, mostly American. Hmm. 
fog of war, you're not told what's going on, that kind of stuff. The thing that stands out for me is that there was something slightly different about this that wasn't expected, that was being planned in advance. Uh, obviously, this was well planned, but um, I mean, the Ukrainian military hasn't shown in the last six months an ability to launch a counteroffensive, you know, against uh, Russian lines. And certainly, this is—it's <laughs> like a big special disinformation operation. We were pretending to do something in the south, and of course, that's never heard of before in, in war, right? I mean, it's—it's it's pretty much warfare one hundred and one, right? It's like not something that the Russians wouldn't have been aware of, you know. So there's something else to—I think there has to be something else to explain it, rather than just. Oh, the Russians were fooled by this feint in the south and then they went in the north. Um, I think it's something that was planned and I think it may have involved more directly a lot of Western, seasoned Western, particularly American, British, whatever, uh, military personnel, well-trained in in weaponry and who had also been spending, because we have to remember that there has been a, it's been going on for eight years basically, but in the last six months or so since the special uh, military operation began, um, they have been intensively training uh, Ukrainian um, military personnel uh, in the context of an, an ongoing war. Do you know what I mean? It's one thing to train them for, like, for example, over the past eight years for their uh, anti-terrorist operation, as they called it, in Donbass. It's another thing it's totally different the way you'd be trained for for the current ongoing war, you know what I mean, uh, against what what they're up against with Russia, you know. So um, I just I think that there was something, there must have been something along those lines uh, that was planned in advance quite a while. And, it, you know, they basically put, the Russians had, had in a certain sense got lulled into uh, kind of complacency um, by the way things had gone over the past six months and they expected it to continue in that way. Uh, but the Americans, basically, the NATO types were planning a little surprise, which involved uh, a much more robust and effective uh, military force that they put together for this so-called counteroffensive, um, and that it was successful for that reason. But of course, again, in the broader context, it doesn't change anything. As all of this was happening, and everybody was like, you know, swallowing as much copium as possible. Um, Russia continued to do what it has been doing and, and continues today, right now, to continue, uh, to do what it has been doing for um, the last six months, which is, it's and maybe even stepped it up over the past few days, it's uh, launching cruise missiles and other uh, kind of other, other missiles and bombs. Yeah, Iskanders. On locations, uh, you know, behind the front lines, well behind the front lines, you know, um, heading... Um, military depots, you know, command centers, uh, storage facilities, um, all sorts of strategic uh, military targets just carries on doing that. Yeah. You know, so it, it doesn't suggest, it's like, you know, because the way you think about it, they've packed up and gone home, right? Yeah, yeah. They've That's gone home. Impressive. That's it, it's over. Yeah. Bye-bye. You know, it's a turning point, at least, at the very least, it's a turning point where now the, you know, the Russians are on the back foot and they're basically fleeing, they're retreating with all their missiles. They're no longer attacking, they're, f- they're defending and fleeing, but that, not the case. Yeah. Clearly, not the case. Yeah. But so. even when they were defending, that they were killing more Ukrainians yeah. than Russians were dying. Yeah, soldiers. Um, I, I tend to believe them because there, there's enough video footage on Telegram, and even Ukrainian statements. There's video footage of you know streams of ambulances coming into Kharkiv, coming into Nikolaev, into Kiev. 
like they I, I believe the the MOD when they I think it's probably in the ballpark four thousand dead, um, which gives you some idea of the numbers they yeah. threw at this. I mean, that's it's suicidal. But they have such a committed partisan. Yeah. The Americans. This is a match made in heaven or hell, actually, in objective terms. But a match made in heaven for American proxy warfare. A totally committed battering ram against your primary geopolitical enemy, or one of, if China is the second one these days. Um, they wouldn't get that in Taiwan. They wouldn't get that kind of diehard commitment no. um, for an equivalent type. That's why when we talked about Taiwan before, something may happen there, but it won't be the same kind of thing. Yeah. There's something, there's, there's a, there's a decades-long cultural perversion of Ukraine that's taken place where it's true. There's a minority who are hardcore Nazi-like Russophobes. We know they've always been there because in the previous era, Adolf Hitler's most loyal shock troops were invariably Ukrainian or from that area, Galicia, mm. into Poland a bit. There's some stock, there's some breed in yeah, yeah. Ukraine <clears throat> that is yeah. like the perfect Russophobic, right. you know, anti-Russian. You have to allow for that. Like, you're not allowed to talk about that these days, obviously, because that's like, it's racist or something. But I mean, that's obviously a factor. It has to be like there's, there's a racial element for sure. Uh, the first guys who showed up in Kupiansk, uh, one of the key towns near Izium that the Russians left, the first thing they did, okay, lads, line up, put your balaclavas up so you don't show your photo, your 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 faces, and we'll take a photo to prove with geographic landmarks and a background that we were here. They stand on the Russian flag. They put it on the ground. That's okay. That's normal. You stand on the flag. And they hold up the flag of their specific battalion. Mm -hmm. It's the, the skull and bones, Nazi skull and bones from the SS. And it's called, these guys are neo-Nazi outfit. They're actually international in scope, but they're, they've got an actual active battalion in Ukraine. Misanthropic division. <laughs> which is the reference to World War Two and being Nazi Wehrmacht uh, shock troops. Mm -hmm. Like, they they really believe the shit, you know. They really are infused with this kind of thing. And when you then get Americans who come in, we don't know how many, but for sure I've seen a photo of one um, not covered, so he's been uh, ID'd as a guy who was in Fallujah mm. in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. So here's a veteran of Fallujah. In Ukraine, maybe not on the very front lines, but there's a photo of him there, gun toting. Yeah, we did it. You know, that marriage of dominating global imperialist mindset, the whole world is a frontier, and we just got to shoot all the bad guys, which is anyone who doesn't, you know, bow down to America, mm -hmm. plus the local Ukrainian element that is just. <laughs> completely hardcore anti-Russia. Just kill Russians. Yeah. It's it's a great team. It's a great team while it lasts and it's been successful for the first, probably for the first time in the last six months. And it's kind of disheartening. I suppose that's why, hence the doom, you know, among uh, everyone, everyone agrees, almost everyone agrees that there's no way you can spin this as a kind of uh, oh, Russian feint. They're going to, going to strike them back now maybe they are going to strike them back but this this um well the first thing to consider is the people there yeah. 
those people there in some parts have been there now four or five months in what is now Russian-controlled territory. Right. They have <clears throat> cooperated with the Russian soldiers. They've tried to get the economy back on its feet. They're therefore collaborators. And any of them that were seen to have been, or they, to Kiev, as soon as the, the towns were quote-unquote liberated, put out calls, literally advertisements on TV, with a number of people could call if they wanted to rat on anyone as a collaborator. Right. Um, so it, it, there will be reprisals. You know, that's, that's the horrible part about it, that the civilians now will suffer. A lot of them are, are fleeing, you know. A lot flee, thankfully. Out, yeah. out of Kharkiv, yeah. Yeah. And that's people who aren't necessarily Russian collaborators, collaborators as, no. as they'll be called, but rather people who just would say, listen, I'm not taking the risk because, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are welcome in here. They're, they're, you know, they're obviously very, you know, it's, it's a bad situation to be in. You know, there's obviously reprisals. A lot of them are very, very uh, angry and, and, you know, violent, obviously, and uh, they don't like collaborators and they'll just go on. And anybody who smells like a collaborator or looks like one or... Well, there's already a photo of uh, the mayor of a small town bound and has obviously been tortured, probably dead by now. Um, that's going to happen. That's, that's yeah, it's horrific. And But more than just being horrific, though, it, what's worrying is the effect it would have on other parts of, you know, Russian-occupied Zaporizhia or Kherson. Um Donetsk and Lugansk, Russia's given its guarantee, you know, we're not leaving here without those two parts, for sure. But the other places where they've introduced the ruble, where people have, this is part of actually the, the hotline Kiev put out. If you know anyone who has now gotten a Russian passport, do, do give us their names. We're very interested to know where they live. Yeah, I mean... Well, those people are going to be worried. What if there's a breakthrough somewhere else and reprisals and lists are drawn up and that shit, you know? Yeah. I'll have to wait and see. This is a good... Uh... <laughs> It's a good kind of meme here for, uh, for, for, you know, it's a good summation in a certain sense of the situation. Uh, it's got a few elements to it um, in terms of what, how people are responding, uh, you know, uh, the overview of the situation and how people are responding uh, on the pro-Russian pro side, you know. <clears throat> so Ukrainians have lost 127,783 kilometers of land over the past six months and uh, so all through that time, as they were losing that, we will win, we, we will fight at the pro-Ukrainians. And the Russians lose some 70 to 100 kilometers of land, although that's, you know, <laughs> uh, pro-Russians are, it's so fucking over, bro, we lost. And, and no fucking dooming, man, no dooming, you know, no dooming, let's just chill. It's not over, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know, the whole... Again, it comes back to the... I mean, everybody's exposed to a, a, a wall of, of, of Western media and, and also from the, you know, obviously some Russian and Ukra Ukrainian, but Western slash Ukrainian uh, propaganda, which is just like overwhelming. I mean, the entire Western media is just shoving it in your face. They're jumping on every single little thing and twisting it and distorting it and presenting it in a certain light. And like I said, they're doing that consciously as part of the war effort and they see it as fully justified. And it is fully justified. Because it's, up to, it's the responsibility. It's not, we can't say it's, it's, it's the Western media's responsibility to not, to not spin and distort because that's their job. Uh, it's our responsibility to wade through it 
you know, as in a fair fight in the information war type thing, and uh, and to and to look at try and see a, the bigger picture and see what's going on. Um, so, yeah, um, it's 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 interesting though. It, the whole the whole dynamic is very very interesting to watch. Like apart from the horrible nature of the whole thing, but uh, I mean you can't get bogged down in that. You have to take a more yeah. You have to take the armchair general perspective. You know what I mean? I because know. we're uh, all armchair generals, aren't we? Um, I think part of what it makes it horrible when something like this happens is in general our side doesn't want war mm. we're anti we're the anti-war people here mm. this disheartens because we know it extends it because mm. shit you have to win that back mm. oh, I, I, or if it's not a matter of territorial acquisition you at least have to defeat this this apparently new novel Ukrainian upgrade of 50,000 troops You've got to do something about them, and that's going to take. It's going to cost more lives all all the way around, even on the Ukrainians. Yeah, you know sure the is. anti-war side doesn't gloat in general. In general, mm. it does not gloat when there's corpses of Ukrainians, even if they're Nazis piled up. They yeah. don't want the, the other side has exactly what restricts the conscience and support and feelings about. This this war, what the other side has, the other side, the the pro-Ukrainian side is the opposite. Mm. In general, there's obviously a lot of people who are caught up in this uh, by the propaganda. They will also consider themselves anti-war. So I'm making a big generalization, but it also has a huge swathe of people there mm. who are just <coughs> happy to extend this mm -hmm. bloody hell. Uh, uh, John McCain's dead. The other guy, um, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham, Graham, a couple of weeks ago. Remember that video? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rubbing the hands with glee. And he's like, you know, this situation for us right now is perfect. This is before the offensives. He's saying this situation as it is, is perfect. No, no, no. Not that video of where he's anticipating it coming. It's mm. a more recent one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, where he's saying that the situation as it stood in late August was perfect because Russians are dying. Mm. You know. Um, yeah. And it's the same goes for <clears throat> Kiev. <clears throat> you know, any kind of a normal leader by now would have done something. I'd resigned, talked to Russia directly, surrendered, negotiated, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. instead they're like, that, that energized a bunny in Kiev. Yeah. This war has just, it energized him personally. Yeah. He's loving it. Yeah, it's interesting because the roles really have been reversed in a certain sense. And it speaks to what you were just saying about who the, you know, the attitude of the different, the two different sides, let's say, in this and, and their supporters. Um, as a general rule, it's uh, you see a, a lot more aggression and um, anger and, you know, I suppose inhumanity in a certain sense, uh, at least in the way they were treating Russian, have been treating Russian, uh, captured, captured Russian soldiers. Because on the face of it, it looks like the official narrative is that Ukraine is the defender and Russia is the aggressor, right? Usually, at least in terms of the wars that the West has uh, engaged in, um, the, usually the the, the 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 defenders are tend to feel feel that they have like a moral right on their side, you know, yeah. uh, because they're the ones who are being put upon. They're defending their homeland and they take the moral high ground 
and they don't go to excesses. They don't want to be seen to be, you know, kind of brutish or brutal, uh, whereas the aggressor has no such constraints on them. They can go in and they're the ones who are like, you know. They have no ties with the land. Americans right, in exactly. Fallujah are like, whatever, yeah, just yeah. blow the whole thing up. Blow they don't the shit give a shit. And, and abuse the Iraqis and treat them like, you know, subhumans and all that kind of stuff. But... um it's kind of reversed in this situation. The, Rus you know? the Russians coming in have more ties to that land than the West Ukrainian. Well, it's all, I think it's more and mercenaries. Yeah, I don't know if it's on the, the other side. It can be about ties to the land, but it's more like the sense of what your morality. Who has the moral high ground? Who feels that they're fighting a just fight? Uh, you ignore what they say and look at what they do, and that's how you get the idea of who actually feels that they're in the moral right and how they conduct themselves. Um, yeah. So, so, but that if you look behind the scenes, then you see that that's actually that fits because it really is this whole the whole situation was set up in, in such a way that Ukraine was used as the aggressor against uh, at least against uh, Russian speaking people in eastern Ukraine and by extension against Russia. This was an attack on Russia that was planned and developed, like we talked about over the past eight years. Um, uh, since the coup in 2014. And so, so the, the Ukrainians do embody that, even if they don't really understand it or or don't think it or wouldn't say it themselves, they are actually the aggressors. And they act as the aggressor in this situation rather than uh, the, the defender. And Russians have been tending to act as if they're defending something, yeah. some moral good. So that, that they have moral right on their side and they're there to defend the moral good. And if you go into a war with that mentality, you're going to tend to be a bit more uh, humanitarian, let's say, uh, than someone who feels that they're initiating the conflict and they're going to kind of like get those evil bastards type. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. like... Um, a case it's, in it's point. Like the, the, the Russians were evil bastards for the Ukrainians long before the, Rus the Ukrainians were evil bastards for the Russians, right? The Russians uh, only turned to see them in that way because they feel they were aggressed first, because yeah. they were attacked first, which they were, you know? I mean, if people don't understand the geopolitical aspect of this, you don't understand anything. That's the problem. You know, and very few people understand that at all. Very, very few, even in the in the in the info sphere or you know in the public uh, Twitter sphere, or whatever. There's very few people who actually uh, can count them on two hands. Basically, the people who actually seem to understand that this that this in, in broader geopolitical terms. And if you don't understand it in that context, like I said, you don't you won't understand why it's happening, and you won't be on you won't have an opportunity to be on the right side effectively. Yeah, here's a concrete example. Um, that can be tested with evidence. This goes beyond, you know, each side accuses the others of doing harms to people. Mm -hmm. It would take a lot of forensic to mm -hmm. prove that, even though we're, we're happily convinced the anecdotal evidence is the Russians are far more humanitarian towards both the civilians and the Ukrainian soldiers. Okay, but put that aside for a second in brackets. The hardcore evidence on the ground, the material structural evidence, is that the Russians have bound themselves. Remember what the anecdote, they're fighting this war with one hand behind their back. They're not allowed to shoot infrastructure, including water and utility supplies. They're trying to protect nuclear power stations and other thermal power stations mm -hmm. and so on. They're not allowed to bomb trains. Well, they have bombed trains now at this point, but like obviously military trains. In general, the trains are running. They don't bomb highways. They don't bomb any infrastructure at all. That's how these 50,000 probably popped up and surprised them in the Kharkov Oblast. The other side... The other side bombs not just the Donbass, which they've obviously been leveling for eight years, right? 
they've been bombing the utilities and services of the Russian occupied parts. Right. Because that's no longer ours, I think it's been articulated. I'm not sure. I would have to find find it. I think someone in Kiev even let the cat out of the bag. These bastards are going to freeze this winter. Mm -hmm. Collaborators. So the side that's defending its country is expressly targeting the civilian population infrastructure. Right. And that's that's something that you can check. That's verifiable. The other side is going out of its way to not do that. Mm -hmm. And a case in point this week is a Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. At this point now, um, they have blown up the power station that supplies the power to run the nuclear power plant. The Zaporizhia. last one is off. The last, uh, I don't know what, I don't the know last what, reactor's offline, yeah. They say it's no the Russians say it's cool, it's still under control, but I don't... No, but it's no longer surely. supplying. It's no longer. The, the, the guy who is running it, I think he's actually Ukrainian, he's yeah. still running it, he said that it's no longer on, it's no longer supplying the, into the energy grid that was... Right. Uh, the last reactor, which was um, you know, still functioning, is no longer functioning. And, and the whole the, the and they spent weeks general, trying to achieve that target. Yeah, bombing that thing. Christ, the UN this week and Grossi, the head of the IAEA delegation, that supposedly they condemned the bombing of the power plant. It didn't say who. But was doing don't it. say who it did. Yeah. Well, you know the IAEA. I can understand the, the UN his job. Blah, blah, blah. Well, it's like it's a Western organization, basically. You know what I mean. So, yeah, uh, we're just going to wait and see uh, what, what goes down, you know. But, um, yeah, it's not over. It's not it's over. The band's going to make it, man. No, the Russian I mean, MOD just keeps giving its daily briefings. That guy, uh, yeah. <laughs> I forget his name. Um, yeah, yeah, last night we bombed this and this and this. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we talked this and this. And they just carry on like, well, another part of the, you know, business as usual was the fact that like the optics didn't look good, as it turns out. But you had Putin, Shoigu, and Gerasimov, seven thousand kilometers away in the Russian Far East, for war games that simulated an enemy invasion of Russia from the east, mm -hmm. Japan probably. They didn't mention that, but um, an exercise involving fifty thousand troops, delegations of troops from Mongolia, China, India, Myanmar, other Eurasian countries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because that's good. business as usual. Like the well, the point is that, that you should look at that, and you can either see that as them being deluded and delusional, and just like you know abdicating responsibility. Or you could see it uh, from the perspective of that they're looking at it from a broader global perspective, and that this situation is in, in Ukraine is just a small part of a global, as, as far as the Russians and their allies are concerned, a global restructuring, yeah. uh, a, a remaking. It's a great reset. It's the, it's the, it's the, the, East, the Eastern world's great reset of, of the globe, basically, and they're continuing to you know, push in that direction uh, from a global economic point of view and um, consolidating allies in, in, in Asia, etc., uh, consolidating their ties with allies in Asia um, because it's much bigger than just Ukraine. You know, so um, you do have to look at the big picture as well, you know, because it really, if you get bogged down in Ukraine and who's winning and who's lo losing in the minutiae, it's just like, it's kind of silly, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that crossed my mind listening to people go doomer on, but what about the civilians in the places you've just fled from, in quotes? I was thinking, well, there are a lot of civilians they have to keep an eye on. Yeah. 
at any one time. Mm. What about Syria right now? Israel bombed Syria's two main airports last week, the mm. civilian airports, Aleppo and Damascus. Yeah. And Russians carried out airstrikes there as well at the same right. time. And another implication of, of this whole situation seems to be in Yemen as well, the war that was going on in Yemen, which is interesting because um, I, have to, I remind myself as often as I need to, basically, that there are wars that have been going on, not least, in, in for example, in Ukraine, from since 2014, where civilians were being killed every day, and uh, there was an act, uh, f- not as large as the one going on right now, but still an act of war, and you almost didn't hear anything about it yeah. uh, in the Western press, not a word. And you had Yemen going on for the past similar amount of time, even Sorry, longer. 15, uh, um, and you heard very, li- very little about it in, in the Western media. Uh, and I think it's something like 350,000 people have been killed in Yemen in the last seven years, uh, majority of them civilians. Um, you probably, you Ukraine is at five, five or six thousand. You can't say anywhere near that number of civilians have been killed in Ukraine, and yet it's front and center. You know, so it's those kind of things that people should, if they want to be, if they want to think of themselves as rational human beings, uh, and to try, and that they want to understand what's really going on and s- separate the wheat from the chaff, they need to keep that. <laughs> they need to think about th- that fact. That fact that um, just take Yemen, you know. Um, 350,000 civilians, 350,000 people killed, maybe a couple of hundred thousand civilians over the past seven years and nothing. But Ukraine, suddenly, wall to wall, 24-7. Bleeding hearts. Bleeding heart, evil Russia. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like... Um, and, and in Yemen, actually, it seems that it's that's tied into the whole, again, into the broader global uh, kind of big picture aspect to, uh, of it. Uh, you know, obviously... Energy, energy and crisis, trade. Energy crisis. Uh, the uh, European countries in particular are having to look to other sources of energy other than Russia since they basically just cut themselves off from Russian energy because mor- morality or something, because of uh, moral high ground, some, some bizarre reason. But then they have to look elsewhere and they have to look to the Middle East, in particular to the UAE and, and Saudi and stuff, and they have to pander then to Saudi and the UAE to kind of like, you know, dig into their reserves to supply them with oil, etc. And, and, uh, and, and in order to do that, they have to give something back to those countries. And part of giving something back to those countries is to get behind reigniting the war in Yemen because the Saudis and the UAE in particular want to, uh, are fighting a proxy war, claim to have been fighting a proxy war against Iran in Yemen. And it was kind of put on, it has been put on hold. There's kind of ceasefire that's holding for now, but it looks like right now uh, the, and, and the reason that ceasefire is holding is because the West agreed, were put under some pressure to stop supplying uh, the Saudis and the UAE with weapons to wage war against Yemen. But the Saudis and the UAE are saying now, well, listen, if you want our energy, our oil, uh, we want you to keep giving us weapons so we can continue the war in Yemen. So that's a sacrifice that France in particular, America, Britain and France, the three biggest uh, suppliers of weapons to to those Middle Eastern countries fighting a war against the Yemenis, yeah. uh, they're, they're, they're going to have to, uh, you know, open up the uh, the depots again, uh, military weapons depots, and start shipping them, you know, allow the, the war to continue, basically. Or uh, get hands-on. Did you see the news that uh, a French contingent of unknown size landed in Oman next to Yemen mm. last week? Well, I think they've been in the French, American, American, British, and French special forces have been on the ground. Uh, and we talk about Ukraine, you know, have any, are there any actual boots on the ground, Western NATO boots on the ground in, in Ukraine? Well, certainly there have been Western NATO boots on the ground in Yemen in for Yemen. several years, Donald actively Trump's fighting. First. Yeah. 
So it's there's first no war to, fiasco. Yeah, there's no reason to think that they're not uh, doing exactly the same thing in Ukraine. So, so yeah. But again, big picture, Putin said, um, and we mentioned this before. Nobody talked about it at the very beginning. It was all about, oh look, they've uh, the Russians. Uh, we're going to conquer Ukraine in three days. Remember three days? Take yeah. Kiev in three days. Um, blah, blah, blah. They failed. And since then, Russia, Russia has been failing and failing repeatedly, right? Uh, according to the narrative. So, but something Putin said at that time, on the day, I think, or maybe the day after the uh, the invasion, the, the special military operation, as they call it, in Ukraine was launched. Uh, and then the whole sanctions thing were announced, uh, anti-Russian anti-Russia sanctions, um, Putin spoke to, basically told the government that uh, we need to prepare to deal with this situation. We need to put things in place to deal with this sanction situation uh, until at least into 2023, which basically was a year. So I interpreted that, given that sanctions were directly related to the Russian action in Ukraine, um, that that the Russians had planned for this conflict in Ukraine to continue on for at least one year. Um, which just exposes the extent of the bullshit in the Western media about them claiming uh, in, in, in claiming that their Russia planned, Russia had plans that the war would be done in three days and stuff. It's just nonsense. The level of nonsense in the Western media is just crazy. And again, like I said, it's not... Uh, it's something that you, you can't not you can't expect them not to do. It's your responsibility to see through it. Right. Uh, someone in the Ukrainian government said late August that they expect the active phase of the war in Ukraine to end only by the middle of next year, twenty twenty three. So they know it too. It's yeah. this kind of long term timescale. So why is everybody losing their shit over one little blip on the radar? In in Kharkiv, you know, morale. Yeah, but again, whose morale? I know. And why do we identify that? Why? Well, it's the morale of the Russian military. Surely, it's the morale of the Russian military that's most important. Not our morale, right? Exactly. Not anybody sitting in their <laughs> armchair acting like a general. Not their morale. You know, all the, and and having having to remind themselves to don't be doomers. Uh, take more copium. So. Um, yeah. Okay, broaden it out then. In the meantime, Russia has stopped Nord Stream 1. Well, gas flow. Uh, Russia has stopped. That's the culmination point. That's the headlines that were flashed across the world 10 again, days ago. Russia handle. stopped the gas. It's the culmination, obviously, of sanctions. But what's interesting that there is definitely some Russian play involved in this. They're not just, you know, being totally legalistic and sticking with our contracts. They initially said, well, there's going to be a three-day delay because of repairs. And then they said, well, actually, no. Um, there'll be no more Russian gas coming through Nord Stream 1. Not, not number 2, number 1, until the sanctions end. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that, that effectively means that um, <laughs> behind the scenes, again, it's not said but it's pretty clear, because that's what they've been doing all, all along, is that the Europeans have decided to stop accepting or receiving Russian gas and oil. They they made the decision. It's like, you know, 
It's like if you go to a supermarket to buy the same supermarket to buy your food, and then one day you say, you know what, I'm not going to I'm not going to patronize that uh, that 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 shop anymore. I'm not going to buy anything from that supermarket anymore. And then you go home without any food. Um, and then you tell all your friends that that supermarket is trying to starve you to death. Um, it's like you made the choice not to. Um, the reason they cut off Nord Stream 1 was because behind the scenes, uh, the countries, really Germany at this at this point, uh, receiving that gas, um, obviously it goes to other countries as well, but receiving that gas had definitively made the decision because they, they were keep they were keeping the flow going for a little while until they could hedge in their bets in a certain sense but keeping the flow until they could source other other reserves until they got that online so it's been you know they were meant to they should have done this back in uh, february 24th right when sanctions came mm-hmm. in boom okay no more oil and gas no they needed six months to negotiate other contracts and get other supply online yeah including point. chinese lng right which comes from russia which is russian right uh so it's a bit of a joke in that respect but Nord Stream one yeah, they basically stopped paying for it. That's why Russia said, "Okay, you can't get it for free." Right. Come on, guys. Which is what they've been saying all along. You know? Yeah, uh, that that's the way it's going now. The this week, it's oil. Mm. G seven price cap on Russian oil. What the hell is going on here? Mm. Um, maybe we should throw up an article about this. Well, that's just. I mean, the price cap. Just means that it's like go again using the analogy of a, of a supermarket, your local supermarket. You go into the local supermarket, and you and all your friends decide that uh, uh, tell the supermarket owner that listen, you see that um, see all of your products that we buy, uh, we're only going to pay, um, we're only going to pay fifty percent of the price that you have marked on them. We're going to put a cap on the price that we're going to pay for them. Okay, mm-hmm. and the supermarket owner goes. Uh, go fuck yourself. I don't know. Uh, what does he say? He says, he says yeah, go fuck yourself, basically. Um, um, there's no official response, I think, from Russia yet, but Putin was asked about this uh, at the St. Petersburg Forum. I think it was back in July or June. And he said, if they do that, we will stop oil shipments yeah. to Europe. Yeah. And you can all, I think the quote was, you can all freeze your little tails off this winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, but that's the same. Yeah, I mean, the, what what the, difference is there? I mean, hang on a second. Let's just let's just piece this out of why they're doing this now. They initially said we're sanctioning the hell out of Russia, so that Russia cannot, because it's just a gas station, right? It cannot fund its war in Ukraine from the profits, the proceeds of oil and gas sales. Mm-hmm. So, take that, Russia. Mm. What happened was the price of gas went through the roof. Mm-hmm. And Russia made more income than it can possibly handle at the moment. Um, record profits from oil and gas sales. Mm-hmm. So now they're going, it, it, that's what I'm wondering. Is this next step, oh dear, our first move didn't work. So instead, we'll put a cap. And specifically what that means, what that's supposed to mean, is that no um, oil and gas brought from Russia and transported to Europe or anywhere else in the West that signs up to the G7, right, um, will be allowed in because it'll be priced above. It'll be at the market price, whatever the going one is, $100, $120. It must be at, say, $50. Otherwise, it can't come in. Mm-hmm. 
And the way they're doing that is because something like 90% of the insurance companies that insure the ships um, for the trade of oil from Russia are based in the West. And those insurance companies won't allow, they won't give insurance for the trade. So the hope is that this will have an actual physical blocking mechanism on Russian oil leaving Russia at all. What about the open leaving Russia? What about if it goes east? What about if it, if it goes east? Right. Well, that's that's the big flaw, fly in the ointment. It goes east to China and India, and then comes back. You put a, you put a a, a red uh, red flag on it, uh, or a Chinese flag or an Indian flag on it, and then Europe can accept it, and it's all fine. Or in, you put the value of say. Um, you put the actual contents into a ship that match up meet. You claim there's there's less on the ship than there actually is, and you say there's only this much, and it's therefore at the capped price. But actually, it's a lot more. I, there's all sorts of ways around it. It's it's crazy. Can you put that up that article? This um, Russia has actually responded to this price cap. This is Reuters reporting. Russia warns the West energy price cap will be your undoing. Absolutely, it will. Russia warned the West on Friday that plans to try to cap the price of Russia's oil and gas exports in retaliation for the war in Ukraine would fail and ultimately lead to the instability of the United States and Europe. <sighs> okay. They surely know this. Or do they? Are they that mad? Are they crazy enough that this is a the next move in the wishful thinking that they can stop the war slash bring down Putin, whatever, total war in Russia? Or do they know better? And in fact, instability in the West is either what they actually seek or what they don't mind falling back on. It's the perennial question we've been trying to deal with the last six months, but... Well, yeah, but they've been open about it, right? I this mean, is insane. West, Western European countries have been, have been telling all of their citizens that this winter there are going to be energy shortages. Some people might have to make the choice between, uh, because of the prices, might make, uh, have to make a choice between uh, food, uh, staying warm, or eating. And, and that's if they can actually get access to the energy in the first place. Um, and there may be blackouts, et cetera. But they've been talking about all these mm. things. They know that the, the the end result of what they're doing of these policies to supposedly hurt Russia will hurt the citizens of their country. They've been openly saying that. Uh, so it's not even that they, you can you can't really put this down to stupidity and wishful thinking in a certain sense, because um, as if to say that well, they really just you know genuinely were trying to stop Russia but it inadvertently, unforeseeably ended up causing suffering amongst the population through energy shortages. Um, that's obviously not the case. They've been stating openly that they're very clear. They've had a lot of clarity about the fact uh, that of the, uh, about the effects of what uh, they're doing is going to have, uh, where, where it's going to land, where, the, where the, the suffering is going to land. It's going to land the doorstep of the ordinary people of Europe. So, And the ordinary people of Europe go, eh, all right. They go Slavia, Ukraine. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, 
doesn't make much sense, but there you go. They're not a lot of stuff makes sense these days. So, okay. So the European Union, um, in service to this uh, winter of hell that they have lined up for people, have proposed a mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours. Do you want to listen to Ursula decree her pronouncement this week in Brussels? I. I it's I'm astonishing I'm because she she deliberately. I enjoyed listening to her uh, watching her wash her hands, showing people how to wash her hands while while humming "Ode to Joy." <laughs> was that what she was doing? I didn't nas- listen to the it. EU national anthem. Yeah, she was humming Freak. "Ode to Joy." Okay, let's have a, let's have a listen to her. Check out the phrase she is. It is peak demands. The expensive gas comes into the market, so what we have to do is flatten the curve. Mm. and uh, avoid the peak demands, we will propose a mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours, and we will work very closely with the member states to achieve this. Very similar to, uh, to COVID, no. I mean, obviously very similar to COVID, flatten the curve and mandates, right? So, and the whole point, if you remember what flatten the curve in terms of COVID meant, and I mean, it's reasonable to assume that she's using that phrase in the same, in the same way with the same meaning, which was that there was no expectation that uh, by imposing their 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 lockdown policies, their lockdowns on the population, that it would reduce the number of deaths from this virus that was spreading around, um, but rather that they would just spread it out over a period of time uh, so as not to overwhelm the hospitals. That was the whole point. Just mm-hmm. don't overwhelm the hospitals. Um, so... Same amount of people will die. Just over, instead of over two months, it'll be over six months. So is she talking in the same? Uh, so she got the same thing in mind uh, with energy that uh, yeah. we yeah. don't want to have a catastrophic collapse of the energy supply where, for long periods of time, you have um, no energy, people freezing, starving, whatever. Uh, but rather, let's spread that out over like a, a, a maybe a year or two. So we just have short periods of blackouts and energy disruption so that only periodically smaller numbers of people will die as a result. Overall, it'll be the same number. We'll just kill you over a longer period of time. Can I get a amen? Can can can, can everybody get behind that, please? You know, uh, you know, in our benevolence, we, your overlords, <laughs> have decided that we will not murder you all at once We'll do it over a year uh, so that you, you don't get too traumatized and also because we won't overwhelm the hospitals then as well. Uh, because the hospitals, of course, will be uh, suffering blackouts as well, maybe, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at this point, it's like... I don't, I don't get it. Uh, well, I have very little to actually say on any of this, on any of these topics. I mean... Doesn't sound like that, right? But I, I actually do. I, I'm not really interested in saying very much because all of it, to me, and I think it should be to any other rational person, is that it's very clear what's happening. It's very clear what the intent is. It's very clear what the future holds. And that these people are, because it's very clear because they've been open about it. Uh, and the reason I just kind of go, well, I just walk away, is because when they state those things, like basically when they give the rationale for why there's going to be uh, suffering in the population because of energy shortages is because 
Putin bad. And that in response to that, the population doesn't go WTF and storm government buildings or something or do something about it. When they don't do that, I go, well, there's nothing else for me to say about this. I mean, I'm I'm just walking away. There's, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't make I people wake up. I can't make people see that. I can't make people do yeah. what they should do. I can't make people see. And there's just so much bullshit, and people are just shouting and screaming about their own particular little, you know, bugbear or the thing, their axe to grind, or whatever, in the particular area in, in, in the Western world. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, from America across Europe, whatever, they've all got their own little thing that they think is is the thing that they should shout the most about and stuff. And I'm just standing back going, look, do you all not see what's thing. coming? The do you not see what's, what's being done here from a broader perspective? Uh, and that even you being encouraged to get worked up about your little uh, your little axe that you're grinding um, is, is actually a distraction from from what you should be doing. Um, but people just carry on and I go, meh, you all have fun now. Here's another example of this week for, of speaking of the intent of governments, um, as opposed to this just being, oh, natural act of God. Click on the first image on the left. It's a screenshot from Irish Times. Headline, shock and awe of huge energy bills will frighten families, will frighten families into curbing energy use government expects. The article goes on to cite that this is the intention of government policy. That they're sitting back and letting people face this winter of hell because they intend to, quote, nudge and shape behaviors. Right. And where does that go back to? COVID. COVID. And the past two years of COVID. And who has it said it? It's actually Bolsonaro, who you're not allowed to quote because he's extreme right-wing, fascist, uh, racist. uh, He's he's Brazil's Trump, right? Uh, You're not allowed to quote him. But he actually, he was the only only one I know of who said it publicly uh, in terms of a public figure saying it was, he said that, uh, leaders, politicians, and government leaders in the West got a taste of totalitarianism. I think he said some yeah. some version of it. Got a taste of totalitarianism in terms of um, imposing these harsh, punitive measures on the population and seeing that the population went along with it, and that gives them a taste of totalitarianism. What they can do, they can get away with this kind of like this stuff, and and they seem to have liked it and. So that fits with, with what we're seeing now, which is that they expect, as per that headline in the article, they expect uh, that the population will just roll over in the face of it. They expect that the new way of governing the population is to bludgeon them, is to shock and awe them, to terrify them, because that's what they did with COVID. So let's do it for in, in a different area in, in, in terms of energy. Let's do the same thing. Let's terrify them. Let's shock and awe them, which is a frame, phrase obviously made or uh, yeah. Three words made uh, famous uh, in the, when America launched its invasion of Iraq in 2003. And shock and awe was when they fired eight, 500 cruise missiles at Baghdad in one night. Uh, so it's, these, are, um, <laughs> this is, these are energy weapons, I suppose. Uh, exotic energy, en- energy weapons um, being used by the government to shock and awe the population and terrify them into doing what the government wants them to do, which is bow down and accept what we're doing and, you know, I don't know, die. Check out the headline in the sidebar to this Irish Times article. Same day, September 8th. Older people are more susceptible to the cold. So what can they do to stay warm this winter? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, they've just been told the government is trying to hurt them. I the mean, only no, thing that they would rationally do is overthrow the government, but you can't obviously expect the old people to do that. But surely, what can they do? Surely the government should be doing something to help older people uh, in the face of this uh, imminent freeze this winter because they're the most vulnerable. And, and, and obviously far more people die from cold, from freezing in any, in any conditions. Uh, in, a, in any scenario, they die... You know, every year people freeze to death for one reason or another, hypothermia, than they do from too much heat, right? So cold, obviously, is, 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 is the worst thing, except we're told that, that somewhere we're told that all these people were dying and it was terrible because uh, there, was, there were heat waves, right? While they're preparing a freeze for these people in the, in, in the winter. And they admit that older people uh, are more susceptible to dying from hypothermia. Um, but these are the same old people that we all had to lockdown and imprison ourselves for and to flatten save them the dur- curve and flatten the, uh, during COVID. They don't matter anymore. No. So go from do absolutely everything to stop older people who are on death's doorstep from dying to create conditions where older people will die from cold. In two years. Somebody tell me I'm wrong about this. And I think there's a kind of cognitive dissonance going on in a lot of people. Because yeah. they see, I think a lot this. of them sense or know it, but they're stunned. Well, well, they're stunned by it. Yeah, they see. It. They, they, they can't really be doing that, can they? I mean, right. this is this is flagrant, blatant, in your face, genocidal intentions. intentions. Yeah, on the, towards the population, but that can't be true. So we have to look for some other other explanation as to why this is happening. Yeah. So yeah, it's weird. Uh, anyway, QE two. Curie too. Um, everyone has solemn words to say about it, so this is your chance, Joe, to to bust it wide open or to uh, transcend the divide. Lord Mountbatten had a boat. Who's Lord Mountbatten? He's the Queen's cousin. Oh, he's not. He's not with us anymore. What happened to his boat? It uh, it was a, a dodgy. Uh, Dodgy gas cooker. It made it explode. Oh, that uncle. Yeah. That's Charlie's favorite uncle. Charlie's favorite uncle, yeah, who happened to be, according to the FBI file on him, was uh, had a predilection for young boys. Um, I think it was, what was it? Is it 81? I don't even know the act, actual uh, actual date. Uh, anyway, that's kind of off topic. Sort of off topic. Um, when it seems to be a uh, ni- brr, brr, 1979. He died in Mullamore uh, off the coast of Sligo. Uh, yes. <laughs> Go on. There was an explosion on his boat, all right? Yeah. And he didn't make it. Yeah. Whatever. He was killed by the IRA. And do they target him in part because of his predilection for young boys? Probably. Because um, I, I know they targeted the targeted Maggie Thatcher and her government in England itself in the eighties. Um, but that's the only other attempt on a royal. Mm. They never actually went for the Queen, right? No. Right. Okay. Um. Been a bit too far okay, away. well, like, we've probably poorly framed this. 
as uh, suggesting we're we're gloating and dancing on our grave. No, we're not. So we're not. But let's just for let me set it up for you. There's basically two main reactions. One of them is grief slash support, sense of loss that Queen Elizabeth has died after seventy years reign, and the other uh, at the other extreme anyway is a kind of dancing on our grave, a gloating, specifically with having in mind that if she is a symbol indeed, then she is a symbol of imperialism, specifically Western imperialism, and more specifically still the British Empire, which amalgamated, folded into the American, Mm. Anglo-American Empire. So she's the symbolic head of that. Therefore, no, I shall not be giving my, saying fine words about her. Why should I care about her death, you know? Yeah, well, it's, everybody has their heroes, you know, and everybody gets sad about, you know, certain... If one of their heroes dies, whatever, then uh, the people who for whom that person was a hero are very sad about it, and people who had no real relationship with them aren't that sad about it. Big deal. What's, what else is there to say? Uh, the, the British media for the last four days has been wall-to-wall, literally, like the BBC website, the Telegraph website, the Guardian website. There's nothing else on it, at least on the front page. There's nothing. I mean, there were like 30 or 40 articles and all of them were about the Queen and uh, assorted personages associated with her uh, w- with her death. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a uniquely, I wouldn't say British, uniquely English thing. Uh, and not even all of England, I would say it's uniquely southeastern England thing. That's where most of it's kind of concentrated, you know. So you're talking about relatively few people, I think, who express the kind of things that, just throw that one up, Scotty, it's a good example of the kind of... Uh, quintessential uh, English, queen-loving English person. Play that. Mr Deputy Speaker, last night as we sat as a family and watched the news break of her death, tears openly rolled down my cheeks and that of my other half. Our six-year-old took my hand in his and said, Don't worry, Mummy. The King will look after us now. (laughs) He is right. God save the King. So the king's going to look after these people now. Uh, apparently, the queen was looking after them. I don't know how the queen was looking after them. Obviously, in a symbolic way, I think, in, in, in an emotional way, they felt looked after by the queen. It's like having a figurehead above you that kind of like having God in a certain sense. I mean, you know, next step above the queen officially was God, right? She's appointed by by, by God. She's divinely ordained in the line of, uh, 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 you know, as is the case for for monarchy, at least in the tradition of monarchy in Europe, uh, divinely ordained. So it's almost like, you know, uh, a surrogate for... It's basically the English Pope, right? Uh, for Yeah, she's she, head she, of Church of England. She's, so the English, she she's English Pope. Literally the she, head of... She's the spiritual... Uh, for some people, she's the spiritual uh, uh, figurehead of, of, of some, for some English people, and they're very sad about it. Um, it's not rational, but then don't expect human beings to be very rational, you know what I mean? Um, so... Um, they have to, and it's yeah, it's symbolism. It goes very deep, and it's not rational. So, I don't think there's. It's a bit over the top. I think that, I mean, I don't think any of them that subscribe to that kind of outpouring of whatever they're outpouring uh, about the death of the queen. I don't at this point anyway. I think they would. You could very easily take them all and transplant them to North Korea, and they would fit in very well, at least for the period of time whenever that emotionalism is still dominating, because it's like it's a cult of. It's obviously a cult of personality. It's it, it's instructive in terms of understanding, for example, North Korea, uh, in terms of the glorious leader and looking up to the glorious leader. It's very similar, you know. I um, think I know the video you have in mind. Did you see this tweet? No. 
Maybe not. Put this one up, Scotty. So this is the London Underground this week. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, there's also the one I was... The one I was thinking of was... Yeah, that's so that's you had not seen that. That's a lot of Queen, yeah. But that is, yeah, someone else made that connection. Then. Well, I mean, the, the the one I was I was thinking of in terms of the portrayal of uh, the, the presentation, the you know ubiquitous uh, presentation of the Queen of, the, of this figurehead everywhere, uh, not just in the media, but obviously in public places as well. Is is is, is this one? Although it's <laughs> it's a bit more suspect, I suppose. Um, that's that's a McDonald's, you know, uh, you know the. Touchscreen McDonald's, we order your food, but so like the the, the default screen is, yeah. is that you know so you go up and touch the Queen in the face and then you'd order your burgers, you know. Maybe, maybe I don't know if they put a voice on it, you know. Hello, hello. Would you like fries with that? Would you like fries with your Happy Meal? Um, <laughs> Super size you, of course. Um, the Queen is now serving McDonald's. Um, from heaven. From heaven. Um, so. Oh, our culture is so messed up. It, yeah. It's the end of an era, though, isn't it, though? Like, for well, the me, thing is this comes on the tail end of, like, if you think of the greater, the, uh, the, the biggest size end of era is the one that Lavrov has said, talked about, and other Russian leaders over and over. We're coming to the end of roughly 500 years of Western domination of the globe. Yeah. Um, that's obviously what's happening in this great upheaval and transition with the war on terror, 9-11. Oh, 9-11, speaking of which, today is 9-11. Um, 9-11, war on terror, um, war against Russia, war against China. And these are the last throws of that system. Although so it's not surprising that they would use their iconography. Yeah, you know, pr- pr- she lived project, through it. Project their iconography in the face of everybody, it's like to, to, to kind of to hold off the demise in a certain sense, or to, to try and reassert a vain attempt to reassert the the the, the continuity. The, yeah, to keep to keep it going, basically, to, yeah. uh, by by pushing into pushing to the forefront the the symbols of of the things that made us that define us that have defined us. You know, nine um, eleven. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Here's an example of that. Actually. Um, it's from, it's from a little while ago. I don't know if we played it at the time, but uh, or maybe is it actually today? I don't know because I, I remember. I s- no, she's talking about January sixth anyway. Uh, I don't think it's today, but anyway, um, it's from a few weeks ago when what's her face, uh, squeaky voice, uh, whiny little girl voice said said this. Not only a place on our calendars, but, but a place in our collective memory. December seventh. 1941, September 11th, 2001, mm-hmm. and January and, 6th, of 2021. <laughs> those, those days of infamy. What happened on January 6th, 2021? I don't know. Uh, the other two I know about. Somebody waged a full ground war against uh, America. Against American democracy. I'm going to have to Wikipedia that. I have Some no idea people. what happened then. Um, Pearl Harbor, nine eleven, and January six. Look it up; they're all the same. Same things happened when our democracy was, or American democracy was attacked and almost destroyed. 
but they seem to get on okay. They seem to get over it pretty quickly, actually. They rebuilt within a few days and became even better. They should, they should actually, they should, they should have more of them, no? It seems to be good for them, like. Good for the economy. Can you imagine? Hmm. Pearl Harbor, what did Pearl Harbor do for America? Fucking a lot, like. 1941? The beginning, in a certain sense, of the great American century. Mm. Um, 9-11. Boom. Reproject, uh, projecting Americans, uh, American power into around the world. Consolidating American dominance of the world. Awesome. Fantastic. January 6th. Got rid of Orange Man. Perfect. These things were really good for America. Arguably. I'm noticing really a good. kind of downward, downward trend... Think so? Pearl Harbor is like a full-on blitz war actually sunk the American Pacific fleet in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, except it got them into the Second World War. 9-11 and then, and was spectacular, but it's two, you know, two office buildings, largely empty, collapsed, okay. Um, January 6th was like a riot. I know they spun it an insurrection, but at most, you know, a couple of thousand people got into the building, took photos, most left peacefully. You see what I'm getting at? Like, but you're not talking about the They teams. don't have the spectaculars anymore that they might have had. Because now the only way it could be spectacular is if Russia or China or Iran actually bombed Washington, D.C. Mm. You see, what are you going to do? Simulate that. So instead, you've got like pathetic... Each, each subsequent thing to rally the country around a, a national symbol is progressively less impressive than the, the one before it. You know? mm. Yeah. Although they were good. Pearl, Pearl Harbor was very good for America. Oh, uh, yeah. 9-11 was good for America. Uh, I mean, it, at least in the short term. The short term. But we'll have yeah. to wait to see, and you can track it back then and say that's maybe it was the time when it all started to go downhill. Oh, I think But so. at least in the last 20 years. Um, well, let's, it depends who you're talking about. If you're talking about the, the Washington establishment, it was very good for them. The, the the trans no, but by trans any, by any objective measures of wealth, the United States went from not so indebted under Bill Clinton to freaking debts up the wazoo. Mm. Two thousand eight financial crisis. It was partly objective mm. and structural, partly capitalized on. It. It's a bit murky there. It was it was used for different reasons, but I think it genuinely sprung on them, and then it gave the whole West, you know, a shock. Um, we're still living with that, by the way, and and. They're, they managed to save things at that point. But 2008 is going to happen again shortly. Mm. I think that's partly what the whole sanctions war is about. There's even a theory, I mean, I can't quite wrap my whole head around it yet, that it's, it's too bit, bit too all-encompassing. But one of the theories as to why the U.S. dumped a virus on China is that it was done with a view to long-term economic uh, factors in mind. Partly what we discussed before in terms of if the U.S. is like the pigeon on the, the chessboard, it just takes your shit or flips the chessboard over. It was designed to actually stave off this transition and at least level the playing field again in America's interest mm -hmm. with a view to having another American century. Mm -hmm. But um, It's not working out that way. No, I, it's not. China didn't slow down. No. It's not growing as fast, but mm. it didn't slow down completely. Yeah, it was a stopgap measure, basically. But it depends who's, who's, who's going to suffer in the end, you know? Who gets it in the neck, basically? Uh, who, who suffers from... Well, American people do. Yeah. Uh, Westerners that, generally. So it depends. Uh, what that, one of the objective measures of the health of the country is that the personal debt of people... They, 
their own their own well-being is by any objective standard it's gone down mm-hmm. dramatically since 9/11 yeah not for concentrated rich at the top so from the pr- perspective of of the people objectively it's a bad <coughs> thing from the perspective of the washington elite depending on what their agenda is it may be a good thing right although it's not a good th- thing for them if they if the american century the american empire let's say collapses that won't be a good thing for them no yeah uh, I forgot to say this on the Queen. There's one thing, a comment, a, a pictorial comment from the Queen. It's from a, it's a headline from a long time ago. Hurry up, Scotty. Huh. Can't read the date on it there. They're planning an accident in my car so Charles can marry again. This is from... Uh, a note or a letter or a note that Dana wrote to one of her friends, I think, a woman friend. Um, Sometime in the 90s, right? So, yeah. <coughs> so that's what she actually wrote. Uh, it's not in doubt. It's not like a conspiracy theory. She actually wrote that in a note to her friend. Uh, she was under the impression that uh, they were planning an accident in her car so that Charles Camargue. Now, you would have to assume there that they includes, to some extent, Charles. Because the person most invested in being able to marry again would be Charles, right? Uh-huh. As well as other people who might have some investment in him being able to marry again in terms of the image of the uh, of the monarchy and uh, upholding the... Was he not legally able to or something? Yeah, exactly. Surely the whole reason for Protestantism, Henry VIII cutting off his wife's heads, <laughs> the whole yeah, reason well, for separating from Catholic Europe was so they well, could marry as much as they wanted. Yeah, but they? he's, you know, Henry VIII was a bit, you know, we've, we've evolved a little bit since then. Right, still okay. have a but mistress, I'm wondering mistress, what you know the what I mean? legal royal charter rules were for. Maybe he, maybe that was the key. He couldn't remarry, or if he could remarry, it still wouldn't look good. Mm-hmm. If he divorced, remarried, and then became king, mm-hmm. but who cares? I mean, that would have been. That was now twenty-seven or twenty-five years ago. Now, Charles wouldn't have known that. It would have taken twenty-five years for his mum to die, but. So what? That doesn't, it doesn't seem like motive enough to well, have to kill her. Diana was the queen of, would have been, for a lot of people, would have been always the queen of England in their hearts type thing, you know what I mean? Mm. She, she, uh, she had that effect on people and, uh, and that was one positive thing compared to the, like the, the shower today, basically, uh, in, in Buckingham Palace. Uh, there's not much to look to there, um, the ones that are left. So um, Diana was certainly someone that some people could actually look up look up to and, and admire in a genuine way for her genuine positive qualities. Yeah. There's not many none of them in in the in, in the royal family in the UK today have have those qualities. So um, That's something to think about actually. Just three days ago England could have had Queen Diana. Mm. Well, she would have been Queen yeah, Queen, yeah. But she would have been Queen Queen, not well, the Queen Consort. No, she would have been Queen. But Charles would have still been King. King and Queen, yeah. What had two? But for that thing in '97, and it was, was deliberate. It? Yeah. David Icke and uh, or anyone else who made it, you know, notorious, but the, the, their theories Isn't about it f- obviously were wrong. But it's still not conspiracy theory it, to conjecture that she was there was tampering and they they had her killed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, isn't it interesting though that the Queen, when the 
the queen, the head of state, basically the, the monarch, when it's, when it's a queen in England, the husband isn't king. He, he was Prince Philip. Yes, but I think in Diana's case, she would have been the queen. It exactly, that's what I mean. King and queen. That's what I mean. Camilla isn't. No, because she's not uh, a divorcee herself or something. There's some rule for why yeah. she, she could not be queen. But it's interesting, though, that when the king uh, has a wife, she's the queen. But when the queen has a husband, he's not the king. Is that always the case? I thought it was particular to, to the Brits. No, to, to the English. I'm not sure. Maybe that is always the case. It's interesting. Well, that's the case right now, right? And I think it would have been the case. Uh, it was certainly the case under QE2, right? She, he, he was Prince Philip. He wasn't king. He didn't get to be king because he married the queen. The I'm king, wondering, is that because of his particular lineage or because that's just the rule? Even if the queen is legitimately married to her first, uh, is he always not king? Um, Why was Duke of Edinburgh not king? God bless the internet. <clears throat> Reader's Digest. Perfect. Why Prince Philip wasn't king of England. Explained. Uh, Elucidated, sir, Neil. The answer is found in British parliamentary law, which determines who's up next for the throne and also what title his or her spouse will have. Um, when a female in the royal bloodline marries, her husband is not eligible to take the male form of his wife's title. You're right, Joe. It's, it's, a, it's a blanket rule. There's a word you're looking for. It's misogyny. <laughs> well, this is it. It it's used to be pre primogeniture. It's patriarchy. It's patriarchy. Patriarchy. But she was a matriarch. But yes, she symbolized the patriarchy. And that's part of why, you know, there's a lot of people who don't, they actually don't, they expressly say they don't care because, well, why would she, she's the symbol of the patriarchy, right? But it, it's, the whole thing is, it's even more weird than that. England, like, it's supposed to be there are strict rules of succession, you know. It must be Charles and Camilla can't be queen because blah, blah, blah. And blah, blah and Philip could not be king because, you know, strict rules. But that's only a recent set of rules, relatively recent. If you, if you look at the British history of monarchs, the stuff that went on to change the rules when it suited politically... It would blow your mind. There was no fixed patriarch. They wrote the rules up on the hoof. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm obviously talking here about the unbelievable usurpation of the British lines of succession that took place in 1714 when 57 people were overlooked to pick the 58th in line and bring him in, a German from Hanover, House of Hanover, actually, um, and ever since, the British basically have, for all their stuff about Johnny Foreigner, they've had German kings and queens right? continuously since then. And that just wasn't the one-off. Other German blood was brought in. Uh, Victoria married a German. Mm -hmm. Couldn't even speak English. Al mm -hmm. Albrecht. Um, it, it's, a, it's such a strange country. Like, 
you know, part of the simplistic um, left-right thing about where you fall on this issue. Oh, well, you know, tradition and um, the Commonwealth. And come on, it wasn't also. But yes, there were definitely crimes and colonialism was bad in some places. But look, they gave birth to the modern world. You know, all the list of things, the positives they give for it. One of them is that, well, at least there's continuity. There's tradition. There's, assure, there's something reassuring in just the basic stable rules that will keep society going. But they, inter- they interrupt those rules and rewrite them mm-hmm. and mess with things as they go along as well. Um, to the point where English people, like, have their god or goddess, literally, on earth. Mm-hmm. God's represent their pope has been German. Mm-hmm. And before that, Dutch, since the 1600s. Yeah. But they hate Johnny Foreigner because we're English and we're the best. Again. <laughs> like, what the hell? Just don't look for any, you know... Rationality goes out the window. Don't look for rationality amongst most, most human beings, you know. They don't even try, most of them, you know. They don't even want to try. They're not interested, you know. They're just, they're just there for the fields, you know. It's all about just the fields. All, all the fields all the time. Uh, it didn't... Strangely enough, to my great surprise, just to that one up there, Scotty, um, to my great surprise, the Queen was not well-received at uh, a UFC fight in America. Booed. I mean... Oh. <laughs> I just that just blows my mind. Like, who thought that was a good idea? Like, you know, I mean, the type of people who are at UF, UFC fights in America, uh, th- who thought that putting up, you know, in uh, in memoriam of the Queen of England, do you know what I mean? It's just so I don't know. Well, it's not obvious to me why would they would be so negative towards. I thought maybe they'd be indifferent or whatever, or even who is that, but. To be so like, oh, didn't they have to kick politically kick, engaged? Kick, that because of an American kick, revolutionary past, kick the English anti-British a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah, but then there's then there's a like a giant swathe of America that still loves the, mm. the British monarchs, mm. working class too. Well, I think mm. it seems that way anyway. Mm. Maybe I always love to know the numbers in this, and the same way I'd love to know the numbers on uh, how many people in the UK, or uh, yeah, in the UK, let's say, how many people actually, you know cared one way or, they not, or another or felt that it was in any way significant to them and give it a second thought really uh, about the passing of the Queen you know what I mean uh, it's just this, the, the distortive lens of the media across the board is just it's hard you know you have to have to accommodate you have to account for it all the time you have to adjust for it um, Ukraine on everything that happens you have to the media is telling people what reality is yeah when in reality, that's not what reality is. Yeah. It's some, sometimes it's radically different. Um, sometimes it's somewhat different. Here's but another yeah. myth that's burst. The, for about a month there, they battered Westerners over the head with the news that Putin was about to cause a global famine by blocking grain from leaving Ukraine. Well, after, you know much um, BS in the media, it turns out 87 ships 
full of Ukrainian grain have left Ukraine. They would have gone to the Middle East and Africa. But instead, they went to Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently the Council of Europe or someone in Europe basically said that that wasn't true and that in fact 30% went to Africa. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) See, technically, we're going to fact check. That's not true. Yeah, but shitheads, you said three months ago... Ah, what can you do with these people? You know, I I think they did. I think they did admit it before now that the, yeah, yeah, we're taking it, we're taking it, and we'll be dispersing it, we'll be distributing it properly. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, so God, this is. Um, other news uh, was did you hear that Imran Khan nearly had a plane crash? Mm-hmm. Poor Pakistan. <clears throat> that flood there is just. They have had severe flooding in recent years, but. Um, I think the death toll is something like 5,000 at this point um, from major monsoon season flooding. I don't know about the political situation there. Khan is still alive, obviously, but um, I'm afraid his days might be numbered. Um, Because the longer he holds massive rallies uh, of his supporters, um, Pakistan has traditionally been Ruled from the shadows, of course, by a military junta, so who, of course, get their support from London and Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's me for international news. Did you hear the story about the Las Vegas journalist? Mm. Um, Jeff German, mm. he was an investigative reporter uh, for Las Vegas Review Journal. He's been around. He's been there with them. He's sixty nine. I think he's been there thirty or forty years. with one one paper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, look, it was it was a guy that uh, used to work with him, or a former colleague, or something, who wasn't happy, or not a former no. colleague, it was a politician who was who th- this journalist was basically had had dug up dirt on, and he had actually gone to jail. I think, or uh, he, no. he 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 was he was prosecuted in somewhere or other was going to be prosecuted as a result of this journalist's uh, investigations and it was he who actually uh, stabbed him outside his home and he was arrested for it. He stabbed him, he put himself in, tried to disguise himself, stabbed him to death. Um, Three days later, this guy was questioned by police. Um, Someone tipped off the press and there's footage of him coming back to his home. The guy in question is... um, Something, someone, Edward Tellers, I think, mm-hmm. I forget his name. He's a Las Vegas, he's a Democrat, but that's not so important. The point is, he was Las Vegas, uh, well, Clark County, which is a large county, part of Las Vegas City, Clark County public administrator. So he's both a politician and a civil servant. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Tellers, yeah. Was taken into custody last week. He's now formally, he's been formally charged. Yep. They found uh, the DNA of this journalist. On the guy's fingers. Yeah. And Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo confirmed the arrest. Lombardo's still there. Lombardo's still there, yeah. Well, the guy, German, he was the one who broke the news. Someone tipped him off about the two bullet holes in the jet fuel tank at Mm -hmm. Las Vegas airport. Mm -hmm. That story, it never went anywhere. But I'm telling you, my hunch was somebody tipped him off about an, inc- an, an, an 
what is irrelevant to how the official story eventually became, which is that there's one guy up in the hotel firing down at a crowd below. There's no one using a sniper rifle for apparently warming up target practice because that, I think, was what it was trying to signal. There, somebody was trying to let somebody else know via the media through Jeff German that there had been a target practice, not in this direction down, but over here across at the airport. Mm-hmm. With the two, and, you know, they made it. They told him, well, we think maybe they're, they're whatever his name was, um, the, the guy they were, the, the passy they eventually um, said he did it all on his own. Well, he was trying to blow up the jet fuel tanks, you know. Yeah. Which, you know, doesn't make any sense. Anyway. Stephen Paddock. Stephen Paddock. So German, that was German's story. Um, but he had been writing about this Robert Tellis guy. Um, and ongoing or brewing corruption scandal. So, I mean, the only reason I'm even talking about this is because, like, it's just, it was done in broad daylight. They caught him two days later. He's an upstanding politician, member of the community. And he just goes out and stabs a journalist to death because he didn't like his reporting. That is so, like, dystopia. Usually what happens is, you know, the Clinton body bag hand. You hire hitmen to do it Mm -hmm. for you. You don't actually get your fingers dirty, you know? Yeah, yeah. Crazy. It's just some people are not so. It's it's well. I think it gives you an idea of of more and more nuts people populating all positions of power in government in Western countries. It's not just the top. At this point, it's filtered out. You know, Liz Truss becoming the prime minister now is like meh. She met the Queen the day before the Queen died. You know, right? Did she meet the Queen? Yes, she did. Yeah. Did she? Ah, shut up. With your conspiracy oh, theories. Come on, it's not, it's not even conspiracy theory. What are you I'm suggesting? That it was a stage photo? Photoshop or something. Yeah. Really? Isn't there a video of uh, Mocking and Handshake? No? I don't know. I think all I've seen is photographs. Hmm. I haven't seen any video. So, you're, yeah, because that did surprise me that uh, they just announced she was dead. Well, it was one earlier announcement that day to say that she was unwell or something, and then suddenly that she was dead. And it had been two days. Uh, since Liz Trust supposedly. Well, I uh, think there's a video. Oh, no. <laughs> Three days ago. When the Queen died? Two days ago, right? September uh, 8th. September 6th, Liz Trust is sworn in, sworn in, whatever. Yeah, Queen cancels, Queen cancels Trust meeting after, after being told by doctors to rest. Uh, that was a meeting that the Privy Council meant to be afterwards, whatever. But um, <coughs> no, I think there, there probably there they probably might, is. they might have staged a photo to. It's just, but again, it would be fitting, like you know, that people are. Yeah, know, it, that it's all f- all for show, effectively. That it's you know, that it's. Uh, yeah, there's no. I, yeah, no. Th- this video is. It's, it's like pictures, but I don't know. It's just weird that she would be so she would be 
well enough to be standing up and shaking hands with Liz Truss the day, literally the day before she was no longer able to keep body and soul together, you know. But um, you can see how, I mean, it's reasonable to assume that they may have, you know, staged it in order just to keep, you know, continuity, you know, keep the keep the optics good, you know, keep the optics right, that there was a handoff of power type thing, there was a official... Well, it has to be done, to, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, if it wasn't her, it would have been Charles. Um, I doubt I doubt Charles would have objected. Headline in Newsweek about this, QAnon conspiracy theorists think Queen Elizabeth II was murdered. Was murdered? Murdered by Liz Truss? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I only mentioned Liz Truss because, like... 10, 15, 20 years ago, someone that imbecilic and frankly, like, just obviously incompetent, obviously unintelligent, doesn't know the Black Sea from the Baltic Sea, Ukraine from Russia, becoming the prime minister of the country, it, it wouldn't have happened. Well, it's an example the of her not needing to. Yeah. She's not, not making to, yeah, Ukrainian because, policy. Because she, too, is in a symbolic position, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Okay, well. Um, <laughs> did you see that uh, clip from British morning talk show? Mm. Philip Schofield. Yeah. On uh, the Wheel of Fortune for some poor guy who couldn't afford his energy bill. Yeah, it's all. It's, you make light of it. You don't make, make a bit of fun of it. Yeah, you get the energy paid for four months. Woohoo! Isn't that great? No, not well. Yeah, it's kind of good, but I'd rather not have to have my energy paid for four months because after four months, I'm he just going to say that though. No, I wish he had. <laughs> I mean, after four months, uh, yeah, is somebody else going to pay for it? Like you know, it's Hunger Games. Oh yeah, <coughs> I get to live for the next season. Yeah, yeah, maybe next year I won't though. Yeah, just a word from Zelensky from today, actually, in, in response to the Russian thing. Just getting back to that for a minute. Uh, he said that. Um, the next three months will be critical in determining the outcome of the war. So there you go. Don't be dooming, Neil. Got three months to figure things out. See where it goes. Talk to me at Christmas. We'll see where things are. Obviously, we'll be talking about them between now and then. But let's have a look back in three months from now, which will be the 11th of December. Let's do it three and a half months, which will be the 26th of December. 25th of December, actually. On Christmas Day... We'll do a flashback to today and compare and contrast and to see if we needed all that copium (laughs) and how much of the dooming we were doing was appropriate. Until then, let's just chill and follow the plan. Trust the plan. Trust the plan, sorry. Trust the plan. (laughs) All right, Joe. Everybody just trust the plan. I'll It'll all work out in the end. I'll try. Yeah. See me next week, you know, pulling my hair out going, it's over, it's lost. They're halfway to Moscow. Yeah, they're in Moscow. Yeah. Anything else? I'm going to wrap this up. Um, well, the biggest news in Canada the last two weeks is that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau no, has announced um, a historic... 2SLGBTQI plus action plan, yeah. which will totally revitalize the uh, 
improve the social, economic, and health outcomes for all of Canada. Yeah. I haven't a clue what any of that means. It's but a load it sounds, of money. It sounds it. like he's got lots of alphabet letters yeah. accounted for. So it's looking good for Canada. It's a, it's and a, it's a five-year plan. It's a five-year 2SLGPDF yeah. action plan. It's, it's Two-spirit. It's going to be great. It's loads of money for two-spirit indigenous transgender um, drag queens. Is that what it is? That's, that's yeah. great. That's great. 100 million to big them up because they need it. Because they're very oppressed. And uh, it's it's got nothing to do with them. It's everybody else that's oppressing them. They're not bringing it on themselves at all. So shut up, you transphobe. Anyway, um, yeah, that's all I have to say on the war in Ukraine and the death of QE2. Um, I think something else that happened in the past two weeks that well, we Biden's missed was that... Philadelphia. Yeah, well... Whatever Nazi, yeah. I mean, he should have done it in Ukraine with Bandera. It was more black and red, right? Bandera, yeah, blood right? and soil. Yeah, Bandera. Uh, I don't know if that was a <laughs> whoever made that decision. Yeah, really bad. Anyway, that's when he said that uh, you know, uh, eighty million Americans are fascists, um, more or less. And then they backed down. He said not all of them. Semi-fascists. Not all of them, and only semi-fascists. Come on, what's the big deal? Anyway, uh, come on, man. Come on, man. Corn Pop told me to say that. Uh, so, well, the other thing was that America, uh, the US, or the, the Brits, the English, sorry, I keep saying the Brits, the English uh, launched their latest, they should have called it the QE2, but uh, I think they have one called that anyway. Do they? Anyway, they launched an aircraft carrier that was just brand spanking new, and they, I think this was before, uh, since the last show, uh, and it had long awaited, a lot of problems with it, delays. Eventually, it launched it into the Bristol Canal or wherever it was, uh, and it was going to go to over to California for trials and, and exercises uh-huh. with the Americans. And it got about like five hundred yards and it broke down. So it's back in the dock. Anyway, uh, that's British military, English military prowess right there. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's about it's. Geez, we just. God save our regime. God save the regime. Um, almost two hours, yeah. Uh, and did we, I don't even know, did we cover everything? We did, yeah, more or less. It's pretty quick, though. Yeah, well yeah. done. Yeah, uh, nothing else to talk about this week. We'll be back next week uh, with another show, obviously. But for now, thanks for listening, thanks for watching. And don't forget to like and subscribe, and thanks for commenting. Um, yeah. So like I said, we'll be back next week on another show. Until then, have a good day, morning, evening, night, whatever. Thanks for watching, guys. Take, Take it easy. easy. Bye. Can't stop the signal now. Mm-hmm.